This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirror's news and culture podcast. We have three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Denkowski. Throughout this season, we'll be looking at the issues that are driving young people's engagement with politics. The climate crisis, reproductive rights, gun violence, gay and trans rights, and access to the ballot box. But what about those issues is self-evident. Where do we have common ground as a nation and across generations? And where do we differ? In the first of our issue episodes, The Climate Crisis, or Everything is Connected, producer Harriet Jones ventures outside to see one of Connecticut's largest climate adaptation projects in action. There's so much black asphalt, high populations, tall skyscrapers that are just retaining all of this heat. And we speak with Catherine Morris to talk about what it'll take to get a serious commitment on climate action. I don't want political candidates that don't already see this and understand this and aren't acting in response to this. What is your day-to-day interaction with climate change? What is your day-to-day engagement or thoughts on it? Well, a big part of my job is covering it as a science journalist, right? So I'm constantly thinking about it. And here's what I'm, here's, here's what I'm thinking about is I'm hearing from farmers in the Midwest, um, uh, fisher people on the coast of Maine. I'm hearing from residents of areas in California that have been burned by fire, that every single year that they've been alive, it's gotten worse, mm-hmm. whatever the worse is, right? The, there's, there's less snow, there's more drought, there's more heat, there's more water, there's less water, depending on the place. Mm-hmm. And regardless of political affiliation, everyone says this, you can't talk to someone who fishes for a living, who doesn't say it's changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we are frogs in a boiling in a pot of gradually heating sure. up water. We, our tolerance has just gone up and up and up. And the thing about tolerance is, you know, that I learned from last season is your tolerance, you know, when we mm. were talking about the opioid addiction and drug addiction, your tolerance might go up, but your absolute limit mm-hmm. doesn't. That's right. So you may be able to take more, but there's a line. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that we, while we haven't reached it, yeah. we're kind of, we're kind of flirting yeah. with the finish line. My daily interaction with climate change is doom. Mm. I've got so much doom when it comes to thinking about the impermanence of this earth and how in my 30s, I still have a great deal of life ahead of me, but maybe not, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we know that if we are not drastically changing the way we uh, uh, capture CO2 emissions in the U.S. alone— by 2030, some of this change, some of these changes are going to be irrevocable. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean for decisions like deciding to get married if you're a per- if you're someone who's who's thinking about that, buying a home, having kids? It's a big one. And the idea that we that we somehow can all know as a society truthfully that the world is changing because of us. And, and we are steadfast in not doing anything about it. 
is is remarkable. And now, you know, a, a lot of friends of mine, uh, certainly people in the political circles would say, well, look, we just, you know, we're, we're, we're putting through some very important legislation that is going to is going to seriously tackle climate change. You shouldn't poo-poo it, John. It's, it's the first real piece of work, and it's bipartisan work, and the Biden administration could, should get credit. But people younger than the people who serve in Congress, 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, are like, oh, hell no. You are not moving anywhere near fast enough yeah. to save the world that I'm going to live in. Yeah. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hamilton, executive editor of the Connecticut Mirror. Our impact reporting is made possible because of the financial support of members like you. If you are a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. You're helping to create and sustain in-depth news coverage here in the state. If you haven't yet supported the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism like this is vital to our democracy. Go to ctmirror.org and click the red donate button. Thank you. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankoski. Hi, I'm Harriet Jones. I produce Untold, and I also get to do some of the reporting for the show. I'm going to take you on a quick field trip with some researchers from Yukon to look at how they're monitoring the effects of climate change in Connecticut. And you might think, like I did at first, that we'd be ending up in a wetland or a meadow or on a beach. So we are in Norwalk, East Norwalk train station. So we have like 12 locations in Norwalk that we put our heat sensors um, since June. As I pull up, Dr. Yaprak Onat has just climbed down from a ladder propped against a utility pole in the station parking lot, where she zip-tied an inconspicuous piece of equipment about eight feet off the ground. So what we have here is, this is our main uh, frame. This cable connects to actually the temperature sensor. It measures temperature and relative humidity and dew point temperature. So with that, we will be able to calculate the heat index at what people are feeling around the street level, actually, in different neighborhoods and locations. If you just parked in this parking lot and walked past, you would never see that, I think. That's kind of the idea. <laughs> so that it can be like your friendly neighborhood data collection. <laughs> But what can the sensors tell us that, say, your iPhone can't? The temperature reading you see on your phone comes from a satellite. It's measuring surface temperature over a pretty wide radius, and it's not giving you a real sense of how warm you might feel at certain points in a city environment. The main reason that is is something called the urban heat island effect. Yaprak's intern is Yukon environmental engineering student Julia Horlitz. Asphalt in buildings help to retain heat more so than, like, let's say, a rural neighborhood with lots of green space. There's so much black asphalt, high populations, tall skyscrapers that are just retaining all of this heat. Yathrak and Julia want to get really granular about who is feeling what kind of heat where between different neighborhoods in the same city. Is everybody feeling the same thing or some people are disproportionately affected by that heat related to uh, where they are living what kind of city planning has been done in that area. Often the places that can feel hottest are where poorer or older people live, people who might not have the resources to cope in a heat wave. So that there needs to be a solution, an adaptation solution needs to be prepared for that area. Okay, so let's give like the coordinates of our like next location. 
Yukon is partnering with Norwalk's health department on this particular project so the city can plan for the future as temperatures rise. They have a similar parallel project ongoing in Danbury and they collected data in New Haven over the past two summers. As well as helping with city planning, all of these measurements will also be used to help get a more accurate picture of the trajectory of climate change over time. We are going to the normal police station oh, so if you get, get lost. lost. <laughs> yeah. That's very awkward. All right, sounds good. This particular piece of fieldwork is just one small corner of a much larger multi-year project called Resilient Connecticut that's based at UConn's Avery Point campus. Okay. <laughs> Where to begin? Well, to get the bigger picture, I sat with Jim O'Donnell and John Trzinski. Um, essentially, this project was meant to extend opportunities to towns in Connecticut to develop comprehensive, multifunctional resilience projects. This is CIRCA, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. It was founded in 2013 after Superstorm Sandy hit Connecticut's coastline. Doing the engineering to sort of understand what the options are, that takes, you know, not just someone sitting in a room crunching numbers, but you have to go out, you have to take measurements, you have to actually see what's going on in the ground. Jim says mitigating climate change, that's reducing CO2 emissions and moving away from fossil fuels, that's still a culture war issue. But in his experience, adapting to the reality on the ground in Connecticut's vulnerable towns is no longer controversial. The political question is really uh, you know, who pays for the adaptation. And a decision to do nothing right, is, has got costs. So it's not like there's a no-cost option. There's going to be a cost of enduring the effects that are sort of inevitable. And then there's a cost of taking action to reduce those effects. Especially when you talk to the people who work at the local level, like the engineers, public works, the planners, they know what the issues are and they, they're in some cases like pretty desperate for help. And that's because even assessing how we'll adapt to climate impacts is a costly business. There is money out there, particularly now from the two big bills passed in the most recent Congress, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. But in effect, that money doesn't come for free. A lot of programs, they want shovel-ready projects. Give us your shovel-ready projects. You know, shovel-ready, you keep hearing this term. right? All the different steps that you need to take in order to get from hey, we've identified that there's a problem to we have a shovel-ready solution for that. I mean, that is just an immense amount of work. And to give you some perspective, right, like the, if you want a, a project like is being constructed in Bridgeport, which is uh, to reduce flood risk in the south end, you know, it's a berm with a quite extensive project, that's probably a, a $100 million when it's done. And so to design a project that's $100 million, it's going to take 10 to $20 million. And to even write a proposal to get the 10 or $20 million, it's going to be a million dollars. Circa can provide technical assistance and a little bit of cash to prime the pump on adaptation projects, as Connecticut's towns, from the well-heeled to the cash-strapped, look ahead to an uncertain future. So far, the project has identified 63 areas of need in just two counties in the state, and they're currently moving forward on seven of those. There's no doubt there's work to keep them busy for decades to come. Um, 
What's your, give me your name and your title, just so we can get some get some sound levels in your voice. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Catherine Morris, but you can call me Cat, and I'm a scholar activist for environmental justice. Currently working as a governor's fellow for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Is that the new job? Yeah. That's the new job. Oh, excellent. So I'll be here um, kind of working throughout the commissioner's office at DEEP to try to do some good work and make sure that the funds from the uh, investment, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and now the Inflation Reduction Act are actually distributed equitably around the state and hopefully actually advance climate mitigation, you know, emissions reductions, et cetera climate resilience, doing that work in a way that's equitable and does not perpetuate environmental racism. Talk to me about what it means to be a scholar activist. Yeah, so for me, that means, you know, I'm a nerd who's really into environmental justice, but, yeah, I'm committed to a life of learning and kind of having, you know, research and education throughout my career in various iterations, but what matters most to me is, like, the application of that knowledge in a way that serves the greater community, right, that serves the public, not just the institution of academia. And I just want there to be, you know, more environmental justice, intersectional environmental justice in a way that's more healing. Yeah. And you, uh, so you talk about intersectional environmental justice. Um, what are some of those intersections in environmental justice you, you know, that you might think we should be paying attention to? What are those intersections? Yeah, it's hard to choose a couple. I feel like everything is connected. Like, in general, it's kind of just a life philosophy of mine. So when I think about environmental justice, I think of, of course, how are we affecting the natural environment? How are we affecting the planet's well-being? How are we also affecting animal and human health? Um, how are we connecting indigenous rights in relation to our understanding of land stewardship? How are we aware of the fact that, you know, very specific groups are disproportionately impacted by climate disasters are disproportionately impacted by polluting facilities? How are we connecting the fact that there is a climate refugee crisis? So when we're talking about climate policy, we should also be talking about immigration policy. How are we talking about, you know, development and the way that we're trying to create different solutions towards climate change? while also sourcing precious materials from different countries, right? So how are we talking about international solidarity? And I feel like all of those things you just mentioned have always been in little tiny buckets off by themselves, mm -hmm. right? Like some people care about this and some people care about this and some people care about ecosystem for this one very specific frog. And some people yeah. care about, you know, uh, whether or not they're going to have a wind turbine in their backyard. And people aren't really pulling all these threads together. Yeah, unfortunately, and I kind of made it my mission to do so, right? I really want to build connection between these concepts uh, in the process of building connection between people who are doing these different types of work and kind of most importantly, connecting people to nature and life and just the value of life in a way that's not, you know, viewing everything as like production-based mm -hmm. or production-based value or capitalistic value, um, but more so just really recognizing the pricelessness, like the invaluability. Is that a word? I might have made that up. But how invaluable <laughs> life is. Yeah, the intrinsic value of life as a whole, but also like the beauty of it. None of these issues are siloed in reality, so our uh, approach to solutions can't be siloed as but, well. But how does it feel to raise your hand and, and say, but you know these things are all connected and and like 
the health disparities that we're talking about here directly come from this environmental impact. This is not new news, right? I mean, we've yeah. known this for decades and decades and decades. Is, mm. Does it ever shock you that people don't, I don't know, pay more attention to this very important thing? Yeah, I think it's shocking, but also not at the same time. So shocking in the sense that I would like to think it would be more obvious, but not shocking in a sense that, you know, I understand that people get caught up in in first of all culture, right? So our culture has separated these things conceptually and professionally, but also if no one else is doing it, it's really easy to not do it because a lot right. of people don't want to be the first person doing these things, you know? Right. And, and I also think, so it's important to know uh, a note at this point in the conversation that the theme for this season is self-evident, mm. right? And one of the things that we decided to pick up as a question of whether it is self-evident or not is the impacts and I'll say existence of climate change, right? Is climate change self-evident to you? And what's stopping it from being self-evident to other people, if so? Can I give a really long answer? Yeah. To this? Like a it's really, a podcast. You a really long, long answers you want. A really long stream We're not of consciousness. <laughs> right. So, so on top of my academic background and just my lived experience, I also personally am coming to realize that I have a very spiritual connection to nature. Right. And so as I've gotten older, I've recognized that the way I feel about trees is not the same way other people feel about trees. Like I'm a bona fide tree hugger, you know, very, very much living the hippie lifestyle. Um, but that also comes from like an ancestral connection to land that some people don't share. Right. My dad's from Kingston. My mom's from Westmoreland. If you know anything about Westmoreland, that's just the bushes. Like they're all farmers. Like they're just in the trees. Right. And so I've come to be connected to nature through my connection to my culture and what that means specifically for one half of my bloodline. You know what I mean? Like the connection yeah. to trees and being like, wow, like my grandmother and great grandmother like sat at this tree. You know what I mean? Like that does something for me that I can't necessarily expect that to do for other people. Right. And so saving trees um, has that spiritual function, but it also very much has the function of it's going to clean the air. It's going to filter out the air pollution. It's going to shade people in the summer when we're having a heat wave that, you know, is causing droughts and such. It's going to keep stabilizing our ecosystem. So I have those levels of connection to it. But if you grow up in a city, uh, in a concrete jungle, and you have no real sense of connectivity to it, it's really easy, I think, to perpetuate the level of disconnection from ecology specifically, right? So that aspect of understanding climate change is now lost. When you talk about connecting people with nature, though, mm -hmm. to talk more about the idea of reframing it as us being part of nature. That's one of the Very biggest much human so. problems, right? Is yes. That we, you know, for years, the environmental movement's been saying, we want to connect people with the natural world. So, but we are part of the natural world. We're mm -hmm. animals on this planet. Yeah. But a lot of people, like, that in of itself is not self-evident to most people. I think that's a big thing. And I think a lot of that just comes from capitalism really convincing us of that in order to justify the egregious extrapolation of resources consistently. So when we think about climate change yeah. and, I mean, a black woman like you, right, mm -hmm. um, similar to myself, being able to be a part of nature, 
but actually see how how we have been one disenfranchised from nature but then yeah. two most negatively impacted by the climate change it's so disrespectful <laughs> yeah <laughs> what does what does that make you feel where do you where, where do you stand in that kind of thinking yeah so i think um to kind of both of your points at once my response to that uh, came in the form of me organizing Seaside Sounds for environmental justice that took place this past July um, at Seaside Park in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Why is it connecting both of those? So Seaside Park in Bridgeport, it's a city park, gorgeous park, underrated park, criminally underrated park, in my opinion. And it sits in the south end of Bridgeport. The south end of Bridgeport um, is historically dubbed Little Liberia because during the era of chattel slavery in America, that was an area of free land that made it a um, very significant underground railroad destination settlement, right? So they were freed or escaped um, enslaved African, turned African-Americans, um, and indigenous people living and prospering together. Like, this was a thriving community. People were living off the land. People were, you know, seafaring. It was a garden community, right? So that is now juxtaposed with all the stigma that we have on Bridgeport, you know, but also very specifically at one end of the park, you have what used to be a coal plant until like May of 2021, which is insane, but is now like two different gas plants, right? And then far on the other end of the park, not quite on the park in the same way as those gas plants, but like, like you can see it and it's in walking distance from P.T. Barnum Apartments and the school is the um, largest incinerator in the state. Right. So to me, like there's no like separating the fact that that history I just referenced, I didn't learn that in high school, despite going to Basic High School in Bridgeport. I learned that very recently from Maiza Tisdale, who's an amazing black woman who does amazing work in Bridgeport. Shout Maiza. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that that history is lost and the land is disrespected with these very egregious and very obvious examples of environmental racism. I think that erasure facilitates a disconnection to life and culture and history. Um, a connection to which I think would allow us to make better decisions about how we are acknowledging our place on land, right, and our connection to the environment. So it sounds like you you, you have a clear assessment of what is substantial in the sense of policy change, right, and what goes far enough and what doesn't go far enough when we think about things like the um, the Inflation Reduction Act and the climate policies that are listed in there. Do you think we're going, we're going far enough, and what do you think it's going to take if not? Yeah, I think <clears throat> we're <laughs> the quintessential answer. We're taking steps in the right direction, but do I think we're going far enough? far enough in general no i think we're not going far enough in general because of the fact that there's still like capitalism as a priority right fulfilling um a profit motive is still i think often the baseline for a lot of the decisions that we make um even in the inflation reduction act specifically there's a lot of good stuff where like, hey, actually, let me just pull up a little graphic so I can quote things specifically. But there's a lot of good stuff in it. There's about $60 billion specifically allocated towards environmental justice projects in different forms, whether that looks like um, data collection specifically on air pollution data in different communities or emissions reduction efforts. But there's also like tax credits as opposed to direct grants, right? So if you have a tax credit 
that means like you know hey if you pay for transitioning to solar right or if you pay for transitioning into a different renewable will give you a tax credit you'll get some type of refund that does not meet the needs of people who are very low income and then cannot afford that upfront cost right or if you are simultaneously in the same bill also giving fossil fuel industries you know royalties and allowing a facilitation of continued gas and oil leasing you're still not really doing everything that we need to do to respond to climate change. But this feels like an argument of incrementalism being okay, and we don't have time for incrementalism. No, we don't. don't. And I think that's something that my generation is very much, I think we're we're tired of incrementalism. We're really about the action. We don't have any more time to waste. I want to get to the why, Mm. right? So from your perspective and the work that you're doing, why can't we agree on climate change? Who's the we in this? <laughs> I'll say the folks who don't, right? So oh. they, there is a, and I would love to talk enough to... Enough of us to do something. They, uh, yeah. right, exactly. Enough of us to do something. Let's talk about it that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people are just really afraid. Like, I think human beings are risk averse. And some people view the risk of making the large-scale policy and cultural changes necessary to move in a direction that we need to be moving in. I think people are more risk averse to what that will do than they are risk averse to the fact that the planet and all living beings on it are dying. I don't think people are so, you know, blinded that they aren't seeing these things, but I think a lot of it is a disagreement on how are we supposed to solve it? And then when you add issues of different generations, I think the sense of urgency varies as well. Which generation do you uh, hail I don't from? even know. <laughs> um, well, I'm 24, so, so I'm a 98 baby. Uh, but it's like it's like I get as a I get young millennial. <laughs> as a millennial, I'm gonna go ahead and say Gen Z, but I appreciate yeah. that about you. So yeah. we so here at the table we have X, Y, mm-hmm. and Z. Mm-hmm. I would love to do a generational um, examination or assessment of what urgency feels like for us, and mm-hmm. then also. What, what do we see our peers thinking about you know, when it comes to the urgency? So let's start with you, John. Mm. Let's start with X. So, I mean, look, so I don't have kids. Mm. I'll be honest. I have some other friends of mine who are in their early 50s or late 40s who have young kids. And I, honest to God, can't even imagine what it must be like to think of them growing up in a world mm. that is where we're we're, we're headed right now. However, I'm like you, like I'm a tree hugger, right? Like that's what I, that's what I care about. But I also grew up at a time, Mercy, I'll say, where that tree was sort of seen as, it's like a commodity, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I was, when I was growing up and I was hugging the tree, people are like, but you can cut down the tree and you can make shit with it. Right? <laughs> it's lumber. It's lumber. And, it, and that was really the mindset I grew up in. And there was always... I don't know, like a push and pull. Right. Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, so I did not grow up a tree hugger. I became a tree hugger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's something that we all have here at the table that we are now today tree huggers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a piece, I think, when it comes to climate change, where I what I think about every single day is doom. Mm-hmm. Right. I've got a sense of actual doom. The, the, the year 2030 is just in my head <laughs> as a TikTok. Right? Yeah. It's just a... A, a real going in my head of, mm-hmm. all right, 
get you've got eight years mm. and um, Jesse and I have been talking about developing an eight year plan and what does that look like? Do we have kids inside of that eight mm. years? Right. What are the what are some of the other things that we're, we would want to invest in? Some of the things that we would want to uh, commit ourselves to inside that time. And I think that my entire generation, millennials are like, well, nothing good has ever happened to us anyway. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Yeah, I think climate doomism is a trap in of itself, too, because I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, instead of planning and being like, okay, how do I show up? in this how am I going to be active some people are like well there's nothing I could do about it so whatever you know let's just keep on keeping on um, so I think that's really counterproductive um, but not necessarily like the fault of people that are feeling that way I think for me a lot of the access to technology that we have and a lot of the access to all of the scientific information, the globalization, um, and our ability to see how climate change is affecting different parts of the world simultaneously, different parts of the country. I think that has had an impact on my generation's sense of urgency. And we're like, okay, no, like this is very real. We see how real it is for me in my backyard, but I can see how real it is around the world. And we don't have time anymore. For me, that's also translated into me moving away from climate doomism and more into like following a path of pleasure activism to sustain the work and make make sure that I feel really connected to life, not just anxious about death. Mm-hmm. And that must be frustrating though too. It's the sort of, I think of you know Greta Thunberg and the other you know young activists sort of yelling at, at, at boomers going, you don't get it. Yeah. There's no time. But that doesn't feel like your affect, right? Like you don't- you, No, you I don't, feel that yeah. way. I like, I think that, but I just, I can't like, my response to that in terms of the action, in terms of how I committed myself to her career in this field, is yeah. I can't live in that space mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that will just destroy my mental and physical health. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? What, what is it, you both touched on this a, a couple minutes ago, but like, how does it feel to you when you are in these spaces with a lot of other people who are working on what we'll call climate change, environmental impact, and an awful lot of them have beards like mine mm. and Patagonia vests on, yeah. right? <laughs> and they all and they and they're basically like yeah. white men and white women in their forties through their seventies, and they're all. It's like they all have the same lived experience. How does it feel to you, and how do you intersect in that space? Yeah, another long answer. I think also <laughs> because. Right. But the thing is, like, I have so much professional experience in this that I think people respond to. But I have a lot of personal experience that I think allows me to respond to it in the way that I do. So, for instance, um, when I was really young, I grew up, I moved around. I've moved about 15 times in my life. And before I moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, I was often the only black person in the room. Our family was often like one of the only black families in the entire school system. Right. And so because of that, it's not that scary or weird for me to be in spaces filled with a bunch of white people, you know what I mean? Like that, I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, like, hi, you know? And so like, there's that, there's that implication of it, but also um, because my parents are immigrants, I also feel a little bit disconnected from American culture. Like I had a different culture that I was able to like contrast with like American values to some extent, you know? Um, So it allows me to kind of show up in spaces already different on that level as well. Um, and also, I think my background in cognitive science and anthropology allows me to, I understand that like, 
people are generally just kind of operating off of predictive models, then mm-hmm. like they're perceiving the world as a as a function of what's in their immediate environment, what ideas are put onto them through the media, but also through, you know, the people that they live with, through the people mm-hmm. that they love, to the people that they talk to all the time. Now we know it's with their social media feed and the algorithms bubble, right? And so I can kind of give people grace more, um, but it also allows me to be like, hey, I'm gonna challenge that because I understand that this is the bubble and we gotta burst it because we're dying. We can't keep letting people die because you're in the bubble, right? Like we can't keep doing the same things just because that's very familiar and comfortable to you. That said, I understand why you want to keep doing the thing that's familiar and comfortable to you. Um, talk to me about what messaging is working for you as you're trying to convince people about this exact urgency. A lot of people, if you're like really working class, mm-hmm. um, you you don't really have the time to think about that. Like it's not necessarily reaching the top five concerns right now if those top five concerns are paying rent, feeding, paying your utilities, you know, keeping my job, uh, feeding my kids, and not dying from this chronic illness that I don't have insurance to pay for the treatments for. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's really understandable in that case where it's like, you want me to care about some trees, bro? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. that's really understandable. And so, again, that's why I'm kind of like, I need to make these connections for people so that it can become more obvious why they're all related. And that is not being acknowledged in climate policy due to the lack of understanding intersectionality, which is why I'm like, dude, I don't even, I don't want political candidates that don't already see this and understand this and aren't acting in response to this. To me, what seems self-evident about this is, as you mentioned, the intersectionality. And when we talk about climate change, we know that in within the next eight years, we're going to have millions of climate refugees. Yeah. The climate refugee crisis is already starting. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it seems self-evident that if you are um, against large-scale immigration, that you would be for large-scale investments into climate. Hmm. Uh, am I wrong about that? Why, why aren't we seeing things from that lens? <laughs> yeah, because again, I think people aren't connecting those issues yet, like broadly. There's not even a legal definition of a climate refugee. And so like there, there's not a consensus around this issue. It's more something that like, environmental scholars and like um, immigration policy activists are kind of bringing to the forefront and recognizing it. There was an internal uh, climate refugee crisis since Hurricane Katrina. I think that was the first one. You know what I mean? People from New Orleans, they were fully displaced, moving to different states. People in the, the rest of Louisiana weren't even accepting them, right? So the fact that we didn't see it from then was already a problem. But then we have, fast forward, now we have Hurricane Maria, Something like 13,000 Puerto Ricans came up to the tri-state specifically. A lot of them were in Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport. Why? Because that's where all the other Puerto Ricans in (laughs) Connecticut are already. I don't know if you recall, like, there were um, hotels that were just, like, bought out, Mm -hmm. housing people for, like, months on end. And that shows the extent to which we are not prepared to do these things. We're not thinking. There's no foresight. The last thing I want to ask you about is is your cognitive science background and bringing this skill set to the conversation. From your cognitive science scholarly work, I guess I'm wondering what what you can tell us about 
how people's brains work that allow them to be like, you know, it's it's going to be fine. Let's just let's just slow roll this, and because you, you know that there's an outcome at the other end, but yet somehow or other, people are just able to live their day to day lives, being like, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, there are a couple levels of it. First of all, if you, you your brain is going to take in information and skew it however it wants to in a way that fits in in line with like your per, your larger perception of the world. The other side of it is like we don't want like pain and struggle. Like we don't want anxiety, so we're going to do anything we can to move away from that. In our culture, a lot of that is pretty dissociative, right? So it looks like hyper consumption of media and things that give us like an immediate <clears throat> dopamine rush. So on social media, that looks like, you know, posting whatever to get the likes and that makes you feel good and that makes you feel fine. That makes you feel like you either did enough or if you're, you know, expressing an opinion that's anti-climate change and a whole bunch of people like it. Now you're like, oh, look at that. I don't have to think about climate change anymore because a lot of people just validated that thought, right? So you're getting positive reinforcement and you're you're going to move towards positive reinforcement. You're going to move away from anything that's scary. Um, kind of on a separate like tangent note, I feel like that's also why we're like super into going to Mars right now. I feel like it's really dissociative and we're trying not to deal with the <laughs> fact that this planet is like messed up and we're like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Let's just go colonize a different planet, you know? And then the other side of it is like your brain is very much oriented or it really functions by building connections and patterns. So, so much of the people who are making the important decisions who are controlling money, they're very much caught up in this pattern of incrementalism. They think it works. And like that is super innate. Rewiring your brain and really changing things, that takes a lot of consideration. And if you're in a bubble, whether that be with the people that you're around, if you're in a bubble with respect to the fact that like, you know, you own a house. So you're not thinking about the fact that a tax credit is ridiculous when most people are renters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if you don't understand how people are genuinely living in a different world than you and you're making decisions purely based on your worldview and your life experiences, which most people do, that um, is going to impact the type of work that you're doing. S since we're, we're going so hard on people who don't have <laughs> that long-term vision, right? Yeah. Who aren't looking down the road. Well, I mean, what's yours? What does success look like to you? Do you wake up every day mm -hmm. thinking about that, being like, here's what I'd like to see happen yeah. during my career that I can do something about? Yeah, I generally really want to see people internalize and act on the belief that we can innovate culture as much as we innovate technology. I want people to know that like how we're going about life right now is not the end-all be-all. It doesn't have to be the way that we keep doing this. I want people to move in a direction that is life-affirming um, and understanding that the health of humans, the health of animals, the health of the natural environment, they're all intertwined and we're never going to get anywhere that we need to with respect to the climate, with respect to health equity, um, with respect to just an overall quality of life if we keep believing that humans are superior, if we keep believing that what we're doing now is the only option if we keep believing that capitalism is going to save us, if we keep believing that, you know, we can escape this problem by ignoring it. Moving in the direction of life and love. That's, that's my vision. Thank you, Kat. Thank you so much. That was awesome. 
This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org forward slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email, and don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Harriet Jones. Our music is composed by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Butterman.